Welcome to In-House Legal, where we cover a variety of issues pertinent to the general counsel and in-house legal departments of small, mid-size, and large organizations. Join host Randy Milch each month as he discusses the latest developments, trends, and best practices for this very busy and often complicated area of law. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, my name is Randy Milch, and I'm the host of In-House Legal on the Legal Talk Network. I'm honored and happy today to have as a guest Louise Parent. Louise was for over two decades the general counsel at American Express. She has since 2014 been of counsel at the firm of Cleary Gottlieb, and so can give us an interesting perspective from both sides of the big law divide. Louise is also a member of the supervisory board of Deutsche Bank, and a director of Zoetis Inc., a multi-billion dollar animal health company. Louise has bought, sold, litigated, and counseled at the highest levels, so I know we'll have an interesting conversation today. Louise, thanks very much for being with us on In-House Legal. It's a pleasure. Louise, let me start and take you back to your college days. Um, It's the early 70s. It's Smith. What leads you to go to law school? So I actually think there's a great connection between the education and profession. As you said, Randy, this was um, the early 70s. The women's movement was really um, in full flower. And at Smith, uh, the ethos was that women could do anything, um, and and at that it was really at Smith that I understood and thought about what I was going to do with my life, and I was encouraged to think ambitiously and broadly, and that's where I made the decision to go to law school. Um, I really didn't have a lot of role models as a young girl growing up in a small town in Connecticut. There was one woman who was a professional, and she was a lawyer, and another woman who was a professional, and she was a doctor, and there was no chance I was going to medical school, so law was it for me. <laughs> well, that's good enough. So you didn't have what I had, which is a mother who's, who went to her grave wishing you'd gone to medical school, I take it. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> well, that's that's interesting. So uh, you went to Georgetown Law School and, and then it was off to Donovan Leisure. What prompted you to come back to New York and, and go into a, a litigation firm like Donovan? Well, I really, uh, although I had a great experience at Georgetown, um, I was there during uh, the Watergate era, and even uh, though I was a poor law student, I could afford a subscription to the Washington Post and read about what was going on. I could actually go to Judge Sirica's courtroom and go to uh, listen to Senator Irvin's uh, hearings on the Hill. It was a fabulous time to be in D.C., but my roots were really in New York, and I knew I I wanted, I didn't want to practice administrative law, so New York made sense. Donovan Leisure was a great firm, and um, I thought it was a good place for me to get started. You know, of course, we have Donovan in common. I was a, I was yes, a partner, do. Don, partner at Donovan for a short while, a, a little while after you left, and it was a great and storied firm, but it, it sounds like Donovan, if anything, convinced you that you didn't want to be a litigator. 
<laughs> yeah, it did actually. Um, I, uh, you know, of course, this was uh, a long time ago. There were no women partners at Donovan Leisure. It was heavily uh, litigation oriented, as you as you said. And um, I quickly realized that I was a very uh, extroverted person, and I really thought that an in-house environment would allow me to spend a lot more of my time with the clients. And uh, so I made a decision fairly early on in my career to to switch in-house and. Um, just about the time that I was thinking about making the move, I, I got a call from somebody about a job at American Express, which actually was in the um, legis state legislative affairs uh, area, where I knew I was going to rely on oral advocacy and be deeply involved with the business, and I thought that was going to be a good fit for me. Were you at all concerned that moving over to state legislative affairs was going to be a detour out of the law at the time, or were, did that occur to you at the point? I think I, I wasn't thinking that far ahead. I just knew that it was going to be a good change for me and that I, I figured once I got inside American Express, I would work to find the path forward, which is actually what happened. Yeah, and I think that's a valuable lesson if I could uh, divert for a second. I've, I've always told folks thinking about going in-house to worry less about where you start in-house and more about the nature of the place you go to. Because if it's I a meritocracy... I think that's exactly right. right? Yes. A meritocracy you can do anything in, and it doesn't do to, to limit your, your opportunities by being too hard on yourself about your first job. I think that's absolutely right. And, and I would also say that one thing that makes um, an in-house lawyer successful is an, an interest in and commitment to the business. And so if you are presented with the opportunity to work in a business that really interests you and intrigues you, then, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. I think the, the best thing to do is to find the point of entry, not be too picky about it, and just feel confident that you can navigate your way through and continue to get opportunities to grow and advance once you're part of the team. And uh, when did you transition into a strictly legal job at Amex? How long did that take? Actually, what, what happened is probably after two years or so, I recognized that um, there were more things that I wanted to take on. So I kind of morphed into a uh, SEC and corporate M&A lawyer. And I found that in-house, there's always uh, more work to be done than there are necessarily people to do it. So that if you're prepared to volunteer for something and you're prepared to say, I'll take that on, uh, chances are you're going to have the opportunity to do that. So um, I gradually, uh, as I said, migrated out of the state legislative affairs area and into the typical corporate SEC and M&A kind of practice. Now, at Amex, was the M&A practice uh, a little bit rarefied in the sense that uh, you got to hobnob with the most senior folks at the, uh, in, in the company? Yes, it was. Actually, it was great. Um, I had uh, American Express was building uh, a very strong and diversified uh, financial services. I guess we would have said financial services supermarket in those days. And I had uh, some really storied clients, uh, including Jim Robinson and Sandy Weil. And you did have the opportunity to to be and work with alongside the highest levels of business people as you were pulling together these, you know, these uh, mergers and acquisitions. So it was a very heady time and, and very exciting time to be practicing law there. 
So at a certain point, though, Louise, you decided that the M&A shop, despite the fact that it got you FaceTime with the bigwigs, uh, might not be the route to the top. What, can you tell me, about, tell me about a decision you made later on to, to divert away from M&A? Yes, thanks for asking. At some point in time, I did. I, I decided to become the general counsel of one of our subsidiaries, and it was a, our, it was called the Information Services Company of American Express, which later be, was known as First Data, which became a public company, is now private again. Um, this was not an intuitive uh, career move. It was, at best, a lateral move. Uh, the um, information services business was not the core business of American Express. Uh, the people that I was going to be working with, my clients were not going to be the next CEO of American Express. And the common um, perception of the legal work that was done at information services was that it wasn't very sophisticated. It was kind of standard form agreements and the like. Um, so people were really, you know, many people thought that it was not a smart move for me to take the job, but actually it was a great move for me. I learned how to lawyer a sales force, which is, you know, very, very different than being an M&A lawyer. I learned how to uh, insinuate myself into a situation to be accepted as, uh, as adding value to the sales process. I learned how to be a part of an executive team of a business. And I think more importantly, honestly, from the point of view of, of uh, uh, my forward uh, career progression, I was confronted with a wide variety of legal issues, some of which were in my subject matter expertise, many of which were, were not because I was the general counsel. So I learned to, I think, develop some intuition to ferret out and understand legal issues early on. And I also learned the, um, the confidence, self-confidence to deal with issues even if I hadn't spent, you know, 15 years as a, a subject matter expert. So I, f I really fully believe that if I hadn't taken this, um, what some would have called a detour into uh, the, being the general counsel of the um, ISC group, I wouldn't have been the general counsel of American Express. Yeah, I think it's a great lesson. Um, you and I have talked in the past about how important it is to seize opportunities, even if they seem a little bit odd, and to take some risks in an in-house career, because I think that uh, you're going to find more gold in those opportunities than people think sometimes. I absolutely agree. I, I often uh, counsel people that vertical promotion is probably not the end game. Uh, and people who solely focus on, you know, getting promoted in place or within their particular practice group are oftentimes not going to be de developing the wide range of skills that's really going to be the best route that they have to ultimate success within a corporation. Yeah. And in so many ways, you know, lawyering a sales force brings up so many of the problems and issues that confront a general counsel later on. You know, um, salesmen are salesmen are absolutely necessary to a company, but uh, there are obviously many times as a general counsel when you wish they didn't exist. <laughs> you know, I always thought a a business person cannot do a mergers and acquisition agreement without the lawyer, so they have to come to you. Salespeople don't necessarily have to come to you. You have to find a way to come to them and to, as I said, to be perceived as an asset to the sales process and not, not really a, a stumbling block or an obstacle. That's right. And figuring out how to make money the right way is always the, uh, is always the key to a successful lawyering of those people. Exactly. So uh, you're, you're at the information services uh, part of Amex, and then in 93, you get the, you're, you're offered the brass ring. Yes, I was. And that's tremendous. And tell me what, you know, my recollection, I went back and did a little Google search. 
I don't think there were very many women general counsel in the financial services industry at that point. Is that correct? No, although the uh, the general counsel of uh, Discover was uh, it was a woman at that point in time, and um, the general counsel of Goldman Sachs, co-general counsel of Goldman Sachs, uh, was a woman, and she came on shortly after us. And then the woman who was the general counsel of J.P. Morgan came on uh, shortly after that. So there, uh, I might have been the vanguard, but not by long. So there, quite quickly thereafter. There were a number of other um, women who were general counsel financial services firms. Well, that's right. I've, and I, do, I know some of those, those other women with you in the vanguard, uh, all very strong general counsels. So it's 1993, and the first, one of the first things that's on your plate is a bit of an existential problem for American Express facing its competitors at Visa and MasterCard. Could you give us a second and explain the, the business issue that was confronting Amex at the time? Yes, I can. Um, the uh, American Express competes against Visa and MasterCard for uh, as a as a car as a network. And as you all know, Visa and MasterCard are um, have thousands of uh, banks that issue cards on their network. American Express at the time had only one issuer on the network of the American Express card. So we realized that in order to compete more vibrantly with Visa and MasterCard as a network, it would be to our advantage to be able to get other banks to issue on the American Express. Network. We thought that would be good for competition and ultimately for consumers as well. The obstacle that was put in our place, though, is that Visa and MasterCard had uh, rules. Both of them had rules that said that any bank that issued a card on the, Amer- on the American Express Network would be automatically kicked out of Visa and MasterCard and, in essence, forfeit their existing portfolio. So, um, not surprisingly, no bank was prepared to give up its existing portfolio in order to uh, issue on the American Express Network network. So uh, we didn't rush to uh, you know, create a legal, legal battle on this issue. We really uh, tried to partner with banks and see if uh, we could find a way around this, but we really couldn't. And so we had, to, um, we had a choice. We would either give up the network services business before it started, or we would battle uh, to get the rule essentially um, overturned, and we decided to take the latter course. And how long of a battle was that? Well, it was a it was a long battle, actually. Probably it ended up being a global battle, and from beginning to end, it was probably uh, eight years. Uh, and uh, and we really we started really by trying to get some early wins in the EU. The EU didn't have the rule. Visa and Mastercard were considering adopting the rule, and we realized that we needed to confine the problem to where the rule existed, which was in the U.S., and needed to block the spread of the rule uh, globally. So we actually brought a complaint in the EU to stop Visa and MasterCard from uh, implementing the rule in 96, and that was very, very successful. And within, and within a few months, essentially, the um, competition authorities in the EU had indicated that they didn't think the rule was consistent with the EU law, and Visa and MasterCard pulled away from the adoption of the rule. But they didn't change their views about the rule in the United States, I take it? No, no, they didn't. The rule already existed there, so that took considerably longer, and we worked with the Department of Justice, which ultimately determined to sue Visa and MasterCard to challenge the rule, which they did, and in 2001, we received the district court opinion that the um, the court had uh, sided with the DOJ, and then the appeals followed, and ultimately the case finally ended when the Supreme Court uh, denied cert. So this is almost a almost a decade's worth of, of litigation. 
Eight years. I used to say it might not be a bet the company kind of case, but it was probably a bet the general counsel kind of case. So, exactly. Yes, it was a long time. It was a very long time. And how did you, if you could, how did you approach your business partners uh, about the fact that this was going to be a long haul before they saw results? This is sometimes very difficult for them to understand. Yes, it's true. So um, I would also say at the outset, you know, uh, this was a comprehensive approach to a business problem. So, you know, I had strong partnership both on the government relations front, the PR front, and from the business. So it was important to to get a strong partnership from the get-go. One of the things that I did is I I think sometimes uh, there's a presumption that large companies will not be aggressive and that they're not going to be out there and fight. I, I thought it was very important that we be as aggressive as possible so that the business would understand that we were not um, in any way um, going to back off from fighting as hard as we could for them. Uh, and that, you know, having an early win in the EU, we also had a, a very strong uh, showing in Latin America. We brought uh, injunctive actions on the same day in about six different jurisdictions, uh, which was as close as the general counsel's office ever came to a shock and awe campaign. So we were we were really, really uh, aggressive and let the business people know that we would leave no stone unturned in fighting for them. So that I think that helped a bit. But I, I will say that you're absolutely right to point out that the, there is a lot of stress when the business is under a microscope of big-time litigation. And uh, and I would say that, that there's really no um, substitute for, you know, having strong lawyers who are partners with the business team. It's not just up to, to the general counsel. It's really having a strong team of, uh, of lawyers who are working hand-in-glove with the business. And I also think that at the end of the day, you have to under-promise and over-deliver. I, so I always tried to and have a contingency plan in place. I, I always wanted the business people to know that it was going to be a long battle. And in our case, we, we perceived it to be an uphill battle because there was some bad precedent in this area that we were going to need to um, essentially distinguish. So part of it was setting the expectations. Part of it was uh, working hard with your team to be really close to the business people. And I also think at the end of the day, um, the idea of, of leaving no stone unturned was really important. So I wanted the business to understand that we would just do everything we could to be successful. And as as you well know, there are ups and downs in these kinds of things. Um, and I always felt it was important when you got a setback that you tried to retain your composure because people would really look to you to see whether you know or not things were going badly or well. And maintain composure and, you know, uh, focusing on the long haul, I think, um, you know, helped everybody to sort of stay committed to the course of action. All good points for uh, Bet the General Counsel litigation. We're going to take a minute now, Louise, and uh, go to our quest for sponsorship. And so we'll be right back in a minute with more with Louise Parent. This is normally the time in our show when we hear a word from our sponsors, and this could potentially represent an opportunity for you. In-house legal is seeking sponsorship. If you are interested in participating in our programming or would like more information about rates, please contact the team at Legal Talk Network at info at legaltalknetwork.com or go to their website at www.legaltalknetwork.com and click on Advertise.
Welcome back to In-House Legal. We're here with Louise Parent, the former General Counsel of American Express and currently of counsel at Cleary Gottlieb. Louise, you have the benefit of a long perspective on the General Counsel's role, and I'm interested if we could discuss for a few minutes how you have seen that change over the course of the 20 years that you were so, so important to, to Amex and doing that important work. What comes to mind? Yeah, sure. I think it's safe to say that the role of the general counsel in a large company is more central and more influential now than certainly than it was 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. Uh, I think it's now uh, pretty much accepted that the general counsel is going to wear uh, multiple hats. The CEO will instinctively say that they want a business partner. Uh, the general counsel will also be a legal manager of a you know very large budget. Uh, will also be a leader of a global team, uh, is, is called upon to be a strategic advisor, is called upon also to deal with um, other issues, whether they be compliance, government relations, um, and the like. And just as important, in, uh, in particularly in the post-crisis environment, the general counsel has really got to be an ethical role model for people in the company. So I think all of those um, uh, factors uh, make the general counsel's position in a large corporation a really critical one. And you know, I agree with that. In your current role of providing advice to uh, corporations, how do you find that general counsels today are coping with these sorts of issues? I think that, you know, Cleary Gottlieb was the, one of the strongest partners to me um, on a global basis, and I've really enjoyed working with them a lot. And when I've been, since I've been at the firm, I've really reached out to a lot of the firm's clients and their general counsel. And actually, this um, January, I convened a forum of general counsel to talk off the record uh, with partners of the firm about the issues that were really important to them including things like dealing with the new regulatory environment and um, successfully meeting the challenges of globalization. So that's uh, that's been a, a really fun part of my current uh, responsibilities at Cleary. So I've also been able to work with a number of new general counsel as they are stepping into those uh, that this multifaceted role, and that's been really fun as well. So let's take a few of the items you mentioned and, and dig a little deeper for a second. How do you recommend that in-house counsel really achieve the strategic partnership that is so critical to uh, the business folks, particularly in this highly regulated environment that almost any large business finds itself in, particularly in the financial industry? But there's a, there seems to be some tricks of the trade here. What, what do you do to make sure that the, the CEO values and seeks and incorporates your advice? So I think there's probably no substitute for knowing the business well. So uh, I think that it's it's incumbent on the general counsel to understand the firm and its business, to understand how the firm makes money, to understand the way the business operates, uh, and to really put kind of a, a business hat on as they think about the issues that are confronting the company. So I do think not waiting until someone asks a legal question, but really diving in and understanding the company is the first step in being perceived as a strategic advisor. I will also say that I think that you know, being a strategic advisor is more than risk assessment. So very frequently, the general counsel is 
engaged in just um, an, an analysis and a description of risk. And I do think that um, for it, the general counsel to be perceived as a strategic advisor, that has to be balanced by working with the business people to seize on the opportunities that actually um, exist for the business and for the company. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we both know that General counsels or lawyers who are reduced to calling balls and strikes in business situations are quickly ignored, and we have to uh, we have to figure out at some point that no one makes money without undertaking some level of risk. Uh, that's where the money comes from. So it's important to temper the um, uh, natural the things that we learn so well in law school about citing issues and and picking winners and losers and uh, get into the business stream. Um, one of the other things that has changed so much since uh, both you and I started was it has been technology. How would you? How do you see today's general counsel and today's legal departments effectively using technology in a way that would have been, you know, impossible for us who use telexes and uh, faxes uh, back in the day? Yeah, so, so the, I, I think you're absolutely right about technology. Um, it's uh, while it's it's certainly important for um, the way the, the global legal department functions. Um, I would say it's even more important as you strive to be that uh, strategic advisor for the business because the potential for technology to be a disruptive event is just is just huge for many many businesses. And also, I would say because. Technology platforms are global. Um, they are a facilitation, I think, of the global expansion of the business. But just because the platform is global doesn't mean the regulation is global. And, and the lawyers, I think, are really critical in, in helping the business people find the path forward uh, as the company expands internationally. And in terms of just the operation of the, uh, the legal department itself, um, knowledge management, the sharing of information, I've always, I've always thought that the, the one of the benefits of a, a really well-run legal department is that oftentimes the lawyers understand what's happening in different parts of the business even more than the business people do themselves. So they can be the the, uh, the people who are kind of the early warning system and, and facilitate essentially um, the business moving forward. So I do believe that the ability of the technology to help us do our job is is huge and is really continuing to change, but even more important, the impact of technology on the way our businesses run is really, I think, at an inflection point and, and is something that um, is definitely going to influence the way we counsel uh, our business partners. Louise, you mentioned uh, in the litany of things that, the, that you have to worry about these days, the increase in regulation that large businesses face. Do you believe that it's really true that the level has changed, the level of regulation has changed both generally and specifically in the financial area? And, and if so, what's the best way for general counsels to react to that and get their businesses to understand the changes that have happened? So I do think that, you know, when I, I step back and look at the financial services landscape, there are new regulators, financial services regulators, really in the EU, in the U.S., and they are making their voices heard. Uh, so the, the landscape has definitely changed. Um, even existing regulators are stepping up their um, initiatives with very uh, vigorous enforcement, whether that be the SEC's broken windows policy, the, the huge uh, fines and guilty pleas that 
that are being uh, demanded in settlements. So it's certainly safe to say that the environment has changed. Uh, what I think is important, though, for general counsel is to is a couple of things. First of all, I think that it's important to recognize that this is not um, something that's a passing fancy and will change with the next administration or just further time since the crisis. I do think this is um, a new kind of world order that for financial services and one that uh, it's important to recognize is going to persist for a while. Uh, I also think that it's important for the general counsel not to simply be the person who uh, resolves difficult issues at, at uh, and concludes um, difficult conversations with law enforcement and the regulators. It's really important for the general counsel to try to, to step ahead and help the company um, adhere to the to the standards that um, that exist. And that ends up being, I think, a kind of a comprehensive uh, exercise, both from the point of view of the board and its oversight responsibility to the tone of the top of senior management, which is really so critical to a strong compliance program, to understanding really what operational excellence means, because many, um, many regulatory issues stem from operational problems, technology that doesn't work, uh, prob- you know, programs that don't work, don't, don't deliver what was expected by the customer and the like. And finally, I think the general counsel has a, a, a unique perspective on reputational risk and it is very clear that, that firms that fall short of the regulator's expectations um, suffer you know, more than simply monetary fines and penalties, but there is a, a serious reputational risk that um, results as a consequence. So it's really the general counsel's responsibility, along with others in the management team, to understand the expectations of the regulators and to work very hard to make sure that from the top of the house down into the um, uh, into the deep depths of the operations that people are focused on meeting the expectations of the regulators and really dedicated to doing the right thing for their customers and for the firm. Yeah, Louise, I couldn't agree more. It's, uh, it's a big job uh, and one that you did so brilliantly for so many years. Thank you so much for spending time with us today on In-House Legal. It's been a hugely informative half hour, and I very much appreciate it. Thank you so much, Randy. It was a really pleasure. And I want to thank all of you who have listened to our podcast today. For all of you listeners who would like more information about what you've heard today, please visit www.legaltalknetwork.com, or you can also follow us on iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. That brings us to the end of our show. I'm Randy Milch. Thank you for listening, and please join us next time for another great episode of In-House Legal. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always... Consult a lawyer.